Alrighty, we'll go ahead and get started this morning. Um, today we're in chapter 7, so this is God's covenant. So last week we kind of did the preamble, so to speak, of this by talking about the fall of man and the resulting uh, condemnation of man as a result of the fall. And so now we get into God's covenant, and this is a really beautiful uh, chapter. There's only three paragraphs, but there's so much contained within these three paragraphs, and we'll get into the covenantal nature of theology and of our doctrine and talk about really how God interacts with his people. So I'll open us up in prayer, and then the first thing we'll do is we're going to read through the paragraphs. So I'll read the first, and then if, uh, we'll just get some volunteers to read, because I want to do it in a flow so we can kind of get the context and understanding of, uh, of what we're looking at. So I'll open us up in prayer, and then we'll get going. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for uh, the beauty of the earth, and thank you for the creation that you've given us to enjoy. Father, we just thank you for your love and your grace. And uh, may this just be a very encouraging conversation as we talk about the covenants and talk about how you've chosen to establish your kingdom and interact with your people that you have called them um, to uh, yourself to save. Father, just thank you for uh, the uh, endless amounts of grace and mercy that you bestow upon us uh, as undeserved as we are, Father. And I just pray that you would just uh, let us have a wonderful, encouraging conversation and give our uh, ears and hearts receptive nature today uh, as um, whoever's bringing the message we just lay upon our hearts and our souls. It's in uh, your name that we pray. Amen. So we've gotten up to the point in the 1689 where we're now talking about the covenant and then moving into after the covenants, Christ the mediator, um, free will, um, effectual call and justification. So we're getting into uh, the meat of a lot of our theology. But let's first start off by reading these three paragraphs in sequence so we can kind of get a foundational understanding. So I'll read the first, and then we'll get volunteers to read number two and three. So if you've got it, or you can pull it up if you don't have a copy of it, I don't think we see any more, but you can pull it up on uh, the, uh, the website as well, cbcnational.org. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, Yet they could never have attained the reward of life, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Somebody wants to read paragraph two. Moreover, man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation, by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. Paragraph 30. This covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam, in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards, by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament, and it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son and the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the prosper, pros, 
fallen Adam, that ever were saved, did obtain life and blessed immortality, being man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms which Adam stood in his state of innocency. Thank you. All right, so that's our framework. So we start with this idea that the distance between God and creature is great into the fall of man, into how God established his covenants and revealed them perpetually through Scripture. So that's kind of our framework. So let's back up and just first off, we got to talk about the word covenant. So we live in a transactional world. Everything that we do, we, we sign relationship agreements with businesses. We you know, sign contracts when we sign on with a company. We execute contracts. We live in a transactional nature where there are legality around the contracts and the relationships that we establish. And in fact, this is a, a, a potpourri of the morning. How many times in Scripture is the word covenant used? Anybody want to take a guess? It's not like a thousand, but like how many times in the words is the word covenant mentioned in Scripture? 200. 200. Close. 318. 318 times the word covenant is mentioned through Scripture. It's peppered all throughout from Genesis to Revelation. And covenantal language is so central to Scripture because this is the way that God administers his kingdom, and it's how he interacts with his people. And so what is a covenant? We've got to define a covenant. So somebody just kind of give a, a what you think a definition of the word covenant is. I almost kind of alluded to it. Contract with two parties, okay. defining the responsibilities of each. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, you know, we've got a marriage covenant. We have so many covenants, but the way that the authors of the book Sacred Bond describe the covenant, I really like the language they use. Beth, you were spot on. It's a solemn agreement with oaths and, prom and or promises, which imply sanctions or legality. So you've got a contract, a relationship, stipulations, and... Um, sanctions. Those are all sort of the, the framework of covenant. And, you know, frankly, covenants were, as we are today, transactional people, they were central to the way that people interacted with each other in relationships, legally establishing covenants with legal ramifications. And if you think historically, the writers of the books of Scripture, um, and the writers of, of all the texts, with many images in Scripture, they used language, they used ideas that were familiar to the people, to them, that they could make analogies, that they could make, um, uh, use examples that were uh, um, popular or that were easy to relate to. So there's countless references in Scripture to agriculture because that was a very common way these people interacted, they worked, they understood. Then, you know, when you refer to things as seeds and growers and farmers, that's the way they lived, that's the way they interacted. With covenants, it's particularly uh, relational to international politics at the time. And if you think about the ancient Near East, which you think of Mesopotamia, and you think of that particular time in history, there's a particular relational aspect of covenants to Near Eastern treaties and the way that these treaties were executed. So there's a distinct parallel between these ancient Near Eastern treaties and biblical covenants. So first you had a ruler, and the greater ruler was often called the suzerain. And that greater ruler imposes conditions on the lesser ruler. And that lesser ruler is called the vassal. 
So keep this framework in mind. So typically, these uh, covenants or these treaties contained a preamble, and that preamble identified the way that the treaty maker, i.e. the suzerain, the greater power, would um, uh, interact. And so it included that preamble, And after the preamble, then you had a historical prologue, and that historical prologue justifies why the suzerain had a right over the vassal. A lot of times this is from a military conflict, and so at the resolution of the military conflict, then the suzerain of the greater power would then impose these things over the vassal. And so you have a preamble, the historical prologue, Following the historical prologue, then you have that list of stipulations and sanctions that I kind of refer to. And that's kind of part and parcel of any treaty, covenant, um, contract, anything like that. So you have stipulations, and then you have the sanctions. So this is kind of the, the framework of politics, and there's been a lot of work um, in recent years to understand these parallels from international politics and apply them to how biblical covenants look and were created. And so that's your kind of framework. So keep this in mind. So stipulations, I guess I should say, stipulations again would be the commands and the sanctions being like life and death. So for example, if they violated the stipulations, then they would either be exiled or executed, etc., etc. So this was the framework of international politics, but keep this in mind as we go through the biblical covenants because you'll see unique parallels to this framework and how it applies to biblical covenants. So, there's a quote by Louis Burkhoff, and I want to read because I think this is a really, and I'm spending a lot of time defining covenant, but I think it's important because understanding all of these um, items gives you context when thinking about biblical covenants and the way that God is choosing to interact with his people. So Louis Burkhoff said that covenants among men had been made long before God established his covenant with Noah and with Abraham, and this prepared men to understand the significance of a covenant in a world divided by sin and helped them to understand divine revelation when it presented man's relation to God as a covenant relation. This does not mean, however, that the covenant idea originated with man and then somehow was borrowed by God as an appropriate form of that description. Quite the opposite, the archetype of all covenant life is found in the Trinitarian being of God, and what is seen among men is but a faint copy of this. So I think it's a really succinct way to understand what a covenant is and how it wasn't just borrowed by God because this is the way men interacted. This is the way that God establishes and interacts with people. So now we've got an understanding of that. So now we can dig into these three paragraphs because they all flow from each other from a greater covenant all the way down to the specific ways that God interacts with men from the beginning of Genesis all the way through the New Testament. So this first one, I'm going to read it again because it's short. And we'll talk about that. So the distance between God and the creature is so great, although reasonable creatures 
do obedience to him as their creator, yet they could have never obtained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he had been pleased to express by way of covenant. So what does this first paragraph tell you? Just, it's not, it doesn't have to be a tricky question. What does this first paragraph tell you? We're far from him. We're far from him. That's exactly what this is implying. Number one, the, the other important thing to note this particular paragraph is that this is not in reference to sin. We're going to get there. We're going to get there in paragraph two. But this first paragraph is the necessity of a divine covenant because there's such a distance between God and his created. And so at this point, God has to condescend, not in a negative way. He has to lower himself to us to be able to relate to us. So there's a voluntary condescension on God's part to lower himself to the status of human race to be able to relate to us, and he's doing this by way of covenant. So he's not talking about sin? Not in this particular. He's just talking about the the creator and creature relationship? Exactly. In this particular paragraph. The next paragraph talks about sin. sin. But here, think about it again from this context. That's why I brought this up, because you've got Yahweh, you have God who's the greater, and you have man who's the vassal at this point. Man, the inferior, so to speak. And it's important to note that, again, like I said, this one isn't for sin. Think of this covenant uh, framework. Think about what we had just in the beginning of Genesis. We have the preamble. In the beginning, there's your preamble. God created the heavens and the earth. Or in the, I guess um, the actual, uh, um, I'll read Genesis 1 just because so we can have it completely accurate. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We have the preamble, and we have the historical prologue right here in the creation era, Genesis 1 and 2. It defines why the suzerain is a greater than the vassal, because he's the creator of the vassal. Exactly. And of all things. Exactly. And then flowing from Genesis 1 and 2, you've got stipulations and sanctions. The stipulations being that Adam must guard, keep the garden, don't eat of the tree of knowledge, or what happens? Surely you will die. So you've got stipulations and sanctions. So you have this context of international politics interwoven with a biblical covenant. And this is purely the relationship between God and man. This is not even getting to sin yet. But in each of the covenants, you see a reflection of this framework in every way that covenants are designed. So we move into paragraph two. Moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace where he freely offers into sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring them of faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained into eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So someone that has um, a Bible, read Romans 3, 20 and 21, because this gives some nice context to this particular verse or this particular chapter. Romans 3, 20 and 21. 
through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Bear witness to it, exactly. So, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So we have in this particular paragraph, we have the understanding now that man is apart from God and he has established another way of interacting with humanity. And here we make allusions to the covenant of grace. But I think, actually, we need to back up because in our theological framework, we kind of have three covenants that we refer to. The first being the covenant of redemption. And this particular covenant, sort of overarching, is the covenant that was made in eternity past, so to speak, between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So this is that sort of pact between the, the three parts of the Trinity that was pre-existing everything that happened in humanity. And according to the terms that the Father chose a people to save, the Son agreed to redeem those, that people through his life, death, and resurrection, and then the Holy Spirit consented to apply the redeeming work of the Son to those whom the Father had chosen. So that's kind of the, in, in a way, this covenant of redemption. And so... You flow from the covenant of redemption to the covenant of works. And the covenant of works is sometimes called the covenant of creation or the, um, uh, I always say it wrong, the, uh, the Adamic covenant or Adamic covenant. It's a very odd iteration of saying, uh, using that, the word Adam. But this is the covenant of works. And this was established between God and Adam as the representative of all the people who descend from Adam. So this covenant of works, again, was a relational framework from God, the greater, the suzerain, to the vassal, to Adam. And Adam being our, as we often say in this church, our federal head. Because everything that, that, that flows from Adam applies to us as humans. And so you have this relational aspect, this covenant of works that's established by God to man. And so... Even, if even, even in the, uh, the covenant of works, it was still the condescension of God to have uh, the... Well, to have attained the reward of life. Mm -hmm. If Adam had obeyed and not eaten of the tree, then he would have been able to eat of the other tree, which is the tree of life. Right. And then he would have lived forever in that perfect state. But exactly. Because he didn't, he fell, then all the other covenants come into play. Exactly. You know, it's interesting, as I was reading and studying for this, there's this really interesting relationship uh, or designation in all of the, in really the entire scripture, but the way that God uh, creates covenants, interacts with his people of works and rest. And so God created the heavens and the earth, and then he rested. If... If Adam would have been uh, would have obeyed fully through this covenant, he would have worked and then rested for eternity in that. And in the same way, we now, as we relate to God and through 
the covenant of grace, we have trials in this life, yet we rest in eternity when we are in the throne. So there's this unique parallel of works and rest interwoven into all of these covenants. You know, there's, <laughs> there are countless places in Scripture, too, that we could talk about the, the covenant of works, but, um, you know, part of it is contained within... I, I might back up and read um, Romans 5, 12 through 21, because I think that that also highlights the covenant of works. And Romans is very rich in, in sort of delving into our covenant theology. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all had sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for many, if, if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one's trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So you've got this beautiful interlacing of the fall of man and the relationship that God has established with this covenant of works that bleeds into the covenant of grace, I guess pun intended actually that it bled into the covenant of grace because it was Christ's blood that was shed to uh, cover us. And so that, again, folds into the covenant of grace when Adam disobeyed, ate from the tree. God would have been entirely just to leave humanity in perpetuity in a sin of state and misery, cut off from eternal life because that's the stipulation of this treaty that God established. Yet, he didn't. He made a covenant of grace with his people, pledging to save us through Christ. And the very first hint we have of that, we've talked about it at many different iterations in this class, but it's back in Genesis 3.15. And in Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. And so those are sort of the three overarching covenants that we talk about in covenant of theology. The covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. And as we get into paragraph three, then we start talking about all the other ways that God establishes covenants through the scripture and how they sort of fold into each other. When you say fold, do you mean that they just initially just start and then go right into the next one? Or do they all 
stay active at the beginning. There, there's some temporal space with some of them, but think of it as God's progressive revelation throughout Scripture, right. and we learn of the different covenants and the way that he's making promises to his people yeah. or the yeah. way that he's interacting with people through Scripture. Because we're going to go through... Um, the the other types of the the other covenants that are referred to in scripture because paragraph three is like think of that as the umbrella and then all the little things that come off of the umbrella um, that's the covenants that we'll talk about because this is sort of a you could actually be apt to interpret this entire chapter that there's one covenant that God has because it's written God's covenant and then it kind of refers to this covenant this covenant which it is a covenant but he does it in multiple different iterations and interactions with his people across the perpetuity, or I guess across the continuity of Scripture. Yeah, I, I think the covenant was best described to me as like it's, it's like you have a, um, you're just getting, you have like a very blurry vision of it, and then it kind of hones in mm -hmm. on the gospel where the covenant is made, um, is brought to fruition. So it's like the, the, the Noahic covenant establishes that the world is the place for redemption to happen. Mm -hmm. And then throughout time, it hones into, yeah, Christ's coming. And mm -hmm. so that that covenant of the world is still fulfilled, they're still active, I guess, but it's just honing in onto the actual yeah. fruition. The, the clear, you start with a blurry vision and then come, mm -hmm. come more to a, a succinct um, Although, what that means. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't know no, I think I think that's right. But you know, you still have the context that in Genesis three fifteen, that's the you know the first hint of the coming of Christ, the the yeah. fact that that's it. But throughout Scripture, you have ways that God interacts, and they all they all are interlaced in some way. I think I think you you've got it in the right description, Maybe, yeah. but it's not like it, it it's not like one um, all the time leads into another because you you know well. As we go through, I think it'll make it'll make sense. And it's just like he's constantly amending the original covenant to become more focused, right? That's kind of what it sounds like. Um, I would be careful with the language of amending yeah. because you don't want it to seem as if this this contract is changing. the The terms of the contract never change. Right. the The, the contract is always valid, so it's always okay, that. As you go into grace, what happens? Where do Where do you change the you don't. You don't. You don't. So that was all there planning to be because the first because the first covenant was inside of the Trinity, mm -hmm. the covenant of redemption. Well, why would he have to make a covenant of works in order to have redemption? Well, because you've got to obey. Why would he have sent his son in Genesis three fifteen, saying, "I will send your seed and you know the seed of the serpent." And crushing and all of that. Why would that happen? Because of the fall, right? So right. it was never it was never anything different than the original covenant, which was the covenant of redemption. Why right. would God need to redeem unless there were them those who needed to be redeemed? Okay, so it, it all expands okay. out from the original covenant. Okay. I guess the only the only one that that it well not the only one but. When we get to the Mosaic Covenant, or the, the, Sinai, the Covenant of Sinai, oh, when, you, when we get to the Covenant of Sinai, there are aspects of the law that are no longer applied once Christ has um, uh, been crucified. So the, the aspects of the civil law and the ceremonial law that are established in the Sinai Covenant, we'll talk about that. 
that is no longer applicable. But the terms of these contracts never change. So as Damien was saying, you know, with this at this point, we have the uh, the contract of, of obedience and then life and death. Well, that was broken by Adam. Okay, so at that point, then God established a covenant of grace that's no longer on the basis of law, but of promise, because He promised in Genesis three fifteen that He would bring the uh, uh, that He would bring Christ. That was the first notation of that, and He established the church to begin to call upon the name of the Lord, and so then you shift into every covenant after that, and they sort of um, either refer back. Or as Beth, you, I like that language of honing in a little bit because you get a more clear picture of the coming of Christ through each of these. Um, but we'll go back. So the one that follows after would be the Noahic covenant. And as you said, this is um, sometimes well, this is actually sometimes called the covenant of continuation because it's the covenant between God and Noah in which the Lord promises to preserve the earth and never again send that flood to destroy the earth. But as you said, this is establishing that God is planning his redemptive work in this earth. And then after Christ, he's bringing those to faith in this earth. And so this is the platform um, from a physical perspective of where God is conducting his work. The Abrahamic covenant, which follows um, in Genesis, is also known as the covenant of promise. And it, God reveals his promise to bless the entire world through one family and through one son from that family in particular. And you have, again, a historical prologue. If you think about this relationship, you have the historical prologue in the first multiple chapters of Genesis up to Noah, and then you have the stipulations and you have the sanctions, the stipulations being that, that, that God is going to, or the promises that God is going to create a lineage where the one will come from him and all, well, that would be actually the Davidic covenant. But in Abraham, he will give him a, a many people, What's interesting, many descendants. The difference between a lot of the covenants that we read about in scripture and the one with Abraham is that in a typical covenant, you have both of the people agreeing to certain sanctions. Yeah. Um, whereas in the covenant of Abraham, the sanctions were only placed against God. God, that's right. He broke the covenant because he put Abraham to sleep, and and God Himself walked through the the separated animals. And that walking through the separated animals is kind of like saying, if I break this covenant, may this the separation of these animals happen to me. Yeah, and so. As he's walking through, it is a one-sided covenant. You can't break this because I'm the one promising these things. Yeah. This will never end. This is always and forever because I'm always and forever. Right. Yeah. So, in a, I mean, in a lot of covenants, there's two. There's two you know, parties that have to agree. And the suzerain treaty, the suzerain covenant is the one that is a single-sided. I'm going to do this for you. Yeah. I'm going to do this for you. You need to follow my rules, period. You don't get to make any rules against me. I'm going to make the rules against you. You have to follow them. But if you do follow them, I will be a good suzerain to you. I yeah. will take care of you. 
And so, yeah, it's just a beautiful picture of, of the fact that the Abrahamic covenant was completely one-sided. one-sided. Yeah. It's the one, it's the one that is one-sided. Yeah. And it, it's it's astounding because that's a that's a hefty promise. Mm-hmm. And God, as you said, is putting that all on himself to keep. I think it's this. Yeah. You know, this is also, I, I really like what Paul says in Galatians, Galatians 3, 15 through 29, because I think it really highlights the beauty of the um, of this covenant. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And we'll we'll continue to get into that, but God has this one-sided covenant established in the Abrahamic covenant. So we talk about the law, and we've talked about um, we've talked about the uh, Mosaic covenant, which would flow after this. It's also known as the Old Covenant or the Law Covenant, and this is the one I refer to that stands out because it has legal regulations. It establishes the sacrificial system, and it was the covenant that was meant as a reflection and as a looking forward to a foreshadowing of Christ. Because we have the understanding that we are a fallen people, and so God established a sacrificial system because we will never meet the standards, so there must be a sacrifice, um, and we will never meet the demands that are imposed upon the people. So we set up the sacrificial system as a foreshadowing to the fact that Christ will be the ultimate sacrifice for humanity. And so um, that uh, nevertheless, the Mosaic law and the covenant, as Paul tells us in Galatians, it holds out the promise of eternal life to all those who keep it perfectly. So yeah, if you think you can truly keep the demands of the law to every dot and iota and cross every T and dot every I, then sure, you can be justified under the covenant of the Mosaic covenant, this Mosaic law and covenant, but that's impossible because there's no... There's, there's no one human, I should say, that can keep the um, tenets of the law perfectly. But God never intended this law to be a means of salvation for sinners. It was showing us that we can't keep it, points us to Christ, who kept the Mosaic Covenant on our behalf, fulfilling also, this is where you get back to what you were saying, Beth, as it kind of filters in, he fulfilled also the covenant of works. So in short... This covenant reminds us of the covenant of works, but it's not necessarily a covenant of works in itself. It's rooted in grace, and it was God's free choice to save Israel and then provide guidance in what pleases him. So, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, the Davidic covenant. This is the one that follows after, and it's also known as the covenant of kingship or a royal covenant. And it identifies that one family descended from Abraham 
in whom God would accomplish all promises to his people. And he chose David out of all the people of Israel to hold kingship over Israel permanently. Um, and he promised from David, from the tribe of Judah, an everlasting throne and a son to build him a temple. And so we see this in 2 Samuel, in 1 Chronicles, in Psalm 89. Um, these are all places where the Davidic covenant is discussed, is given. And then finally, you've got the new covenant. And so all the other covenants under the covenant of grace um, is fulfilled in the new covenant made by God in Christ with his people. It's announced in Jeremiah, and I like the way the author of this article says, it's inaugurated in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, continued in the ministry of the church, and consummated at the return of Jesus at the end of history. So all these covenants begin to flow from each other, and it's this un perpetual unraveling in Scripture as God continues to interact with his people. With Sinai, he makes a covenant with Israel as a nation. But Adam, like Adam, they transgress the covenant. Um, on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant of grace, renewed in the, in the new covenant, God promised a new creation and a new exodus. And when Jesus inaugurated the Lord's Supper in the upper room, he declared the blood, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Instead of a covenant of law, it's a covenant of free mercy. And this is, um, quoting Mike Horton here at the end of an article. He says, unlike Moses, he did not dash the blood on his people, confirming their oath, but pledged his oath in his own blood. He alone passed between the pieces, bearing the judgment in our place. It's a gift, just like a last will and testament. In fact, this is just how the book of Hebrews contrasts the Old Covenant with the New. Hebrews speaks of the unchangeable oath that rests on God's promise rather than on human activity. Paul, too, contrasts the covenant of works and the covenant of grace by appealing to the Abrahamic covenant. The later, the Sinaitic covenant, could not annul the earlier promise. So again, this Sinai covenant that had civil law and ceremonial law and all of these demands, it didn't annul, it wasn't in place, it didn't amend what God promised Abraham. This was just how he chose to interact with that people at that time until the coming of Christ. And at that point, Christ's death and resurrection then establishes that new covenant. And so as we say here in this little parenthesis, it's not a condition of salvation required of the sinner. Faith of, is a gift of grace resulting from the work of regeneration which precedes it. Requiring them of faith in no way means that faith is a work that each man must himself render. This would, of course, mean that justification depends not upon God, but upon the relative capacity of the individual. So our faith in Christ's death and resurrection and the fact that he established that in the new covenant is what then creates that vertical relationship with God, our faith, through this. But there's a covenantal relationship from the beginning to the end. Through all that you can see from these paragraphs from the distance, the requirement that, that, that God must condescend, leading to the fact that man fell, broke the covenant that was initially established, and then we weave through Abraham, through, well, I guess, Noah, through Abraham, Moses, David, and Christ. And that's the flow of covenantal relationships through Scripture. 
And the author of this um, little text that we're using, I really like the way he closes the chapter. He said, Scoffers of the Bible ought to notice the tremendous unity of this scriptural library of 66 separate books written by some 40 different human authors over the span of 1,500 years. Despite the diversity of human authors, their cultures, and their times, this amazing book stands as an organic unit centering on this covenantal grace. To be outside of Christ is to be a stranger to the covenants of promise. There's a development and progression in the Bible reaching to the climactic revelation of God's Son. There's an amazing interrelatedness amid the distinctive features of each redemptive covenant. As you study the divine covenants, note that God has gone to great pains to make himself and his gospel of grace known to you. Be sure that you don't neglect this treasure of gospel grace. Rather, embrace the promised salvation by repentance and faith, and you'll experience the blessing of God's covenant for all eternity. There's Throughout this, the entirety of Scripture, we have this beautiful, redemptive picture painted through the way that God interacts with his people, from the very beginning, all the time, all the way up to Revelation. And it, he does so through this covenantal framework and establishing it from the very beginning and interacting with his people throughout the time. I, it's a beautiful picture. It's a very beautiful picture. Thoughts. I wanted to leave some time because there's a lot wrapped up in covenants. So... I wanted to give the overview, but leave time for questions, comments. Damien, I don't know if you have anything you want to add. I think you covered it pretty well. So with regard to um, this, I don't even know the name of the covenant, but let's just say the one that the Jewish people have been under. Um, The the Mosaic, I guess. Still be under the Mosaic. And I guess they would also uh, point to the Davidic covenant that they're still waiting for mm-hmm. their, you know, for the son of David to come, even though he's already come. Um, so yeah, well, that's, that, that's actually where my question is right there. Yeah. So we've got another covenant now through Jesus, right? Basically. Well, that's the new covenant. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. So you got. Mosaic covenant that the Jews are still under essentially until until they see Jesus and actually understand who he is. Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think they would place themselves under the, that particular covenant. But Christ has come. Yeah. Okay, so it's just that they're not recognizing that there is the fulfillment. So they are underneath the the, the new covenant. They're just not recognizing that they're under the, the fulfillment of, right. of the covenant. They're not like a separate covenant just right. within right. the covenant. Right, right. 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 No, that's a good question. Uh, yeah. Jesus Christ fulfilled it. Those that don't believe that the Messiah has come, however it works for them, um, they might, as Daniel said, place themselves under that, trying to do right. good. Right. right. Christ has already done it for us. Yeah. Right, because I was, I was watching Ben Shapiro. He's like very much that way. He's like, you know, I pray three times a day, and I do this, and I, I'm like, wow, it doesn't even matter what you're doing. I'm yeah. Really sad. You know, the, the, with the, and that's the, the, the Mosaic Covenant, the Sinai Covenant, you know, you have 
moral law, which is written on the tablets of humans and hearts since the very beginning. You have civil law and you have ceremonial law, and those things were all established, I mean, written out in, in great detail in Exodus. Those were the items that were really foregone with the establishment of the new covenant in Christ's death and resurrection. The moral law is still there. The moral law is kind of written on the tablets of our heart, I think it says, um, either in scripture or um, uh, I was quoting an author. But it's written on the hearts of everyone. Mm -hmm. And that's, yes, is it important to follow the law? Absolutely. The, the scriptures instruct us to follow the law, to do as God desires. Oh, how I love your law. It's written in Psalms. It's, it's written on the tablet of our heart to follow the law, but that's not the basis of our justification because we have Christ's death and resurrection who fulfilled these covenantal obligations. Right, so the law being the schoolmaster who basically shows us the goodness of God and shows us our um, departure from that goodness mm -hmm. and our inability to achieve that goodness... Uh, because no one can fulfill the law. No one can love God with their, all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and no one can love their neighbor as themselves. Um, and so as a result of that, it shows us that we need someone else to replace what has been lost, and that someone else is Christ. Right. So the, the, the law being our schoolmaster points us to the one who can truly fulfill the law that we can't fulfill. Right. We, we kind of ran into this a little bit with your grandfather a little bit, and she could explain it better, but her grandfather is actually Jewish, and uh, and I don't think he's like the deepest into the theology of his church or synagogue, but uh, there was a statement he made one time after the man passed or whatever where he's talking about like something about a Jewish heaven versus a Christian one or something, was it? Yeah, it was something about... There was actually that confusion there. Was like there. Different hmm. heavens. I was like, that was the first time I heard. Interesting. It was like, I think he was wondering whether, because she was Christian, and he was wondering if he would be in the same mm -hmm. place up there with her or something like that. I'm, we're like, that's not how it worked. It's been kind of like, kind of running to, because I don't know a lot of, you know, practicing Jewish people myself, so it's kind of been like running to a wall with that, in that conversation with him. Which, mm -hmm. So... To your question rather. that's a good point and Jeff to your point I, I, because we kind of brought it up and alluded to it I wanted to briefly just go through the three uses of the law because that's an important context here and in the sense it the three uses the first is that it's it's a mirror and it reflects us to that perfect righteousness of God and then the fact that we can't do it so the law condemns us mm -hmm. in that sense the second one, it's a civil use. It's used to restrain evil. Like, you know, you don't shoot people. You know, if you shoot somebody, you go to prison type thing. Like, it's, this, it's got a civil use. And its third use is the one that we refer to when we talk about it being written on our hearts that we want to follow it. It's that use as a guide and sort of the, the word as a lamp to our feet. It's to guide the regenerate to good works that God has planned for us. And so you've got those three particular uses as you think of the law. Those are sort of the three overarching uses of law. I think the word uses doesn't really seem to fit. Maybe I'm wrong. But I well, think, of, think about it this way. The, the third quote-unquote use of the law, um, as you said, is specifically for the elect. Mm -hmm. Okay, Because if you're, if you're not 
if you're not in Christ, if you're not regenerate, then the desire to follow the law wouldn't even be there. Okay? Yeah. So the, the reason that the law is a lamp to our feet, the reason that I love your law and meditate upon it day and night, the reason for that is because we love God now. Yeah. We're no longer at enmity with God. We desire to do the things that our Heavenly Father wants us to do. And so, therefore, the law is good. And it helps us. It guides us. It directs us. But it no longer condemns us, which mm -hmm. the first use of the law condemns us. Okay? Or maybe, you know, if you want to say, if you don't like the word use, think of it as the application, the yeah. three applications that, yeah, of the law. That's yeah. what I was looking at, because I'm, it just didn't yeah, make sense. Purpose. I'm yeah. not saying I'm... That's sort of what an older way of saying the just what they're the saying. Yeah. Yeah. Purpose. That's a, What's that's the purpose a, of the law? Yeah. That's right. Three purposes. Word. Right. That's yeah. another good way to do it. Yeah. Three purposes. Yeah. Three pur the, the three purposes of the law. Older jargon. Yeah. Mm Anything no, else? Dolphins. Yeah. That's not porpoises. Porpoises. You got a little picture with three little dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great for kids. That would be really good. Anything else from the group? Any other comments? It, it's beautiful. So anytime you think about covenants, think about this, this relationship and covenantal framework, and it really kind of flips a switch in your mind about how these were designed and applied mm -hmm. and um, spoken about and, and ultimately conducted. Um, it's a beautiful thing. Any, any other comments as we close? Damien, would you close us in prayer then? Yeah. Father, thank you so much. Your grace and your kindness toward us is absolutely astounding and amazing. Father, from before the foundation of the world, it is said that your lamb, your son, was slain. Mm -hmm. From before you even created anything, you planned to redeem those whom you chose. Mm -hmm. Father, thank you for allowing us to be part of that number. It is not because of anything that we have done, simply because of your sovereign choice, your grace, and your mercy that you have lavished upon us. Thank you, Father. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.